I, I am glad, honestly, that, um, that people are, uh, you, you know, we, when you come to church and you find a church that you're, you're welcome in and accepted, you can, you, can, you can love that church, right? You can love the family and be a part of that. And there's a fine line between um, loving your church and being glad you're here and being glad you're a part of what's, what God is doing here and then, and then thinking that your church is the only church. Right, I mean, because I, you you know people are like that. You got if you don't come to my church, you're you're lost or whatever. Um, and 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 there's a there's, so there's a line there. For for many weeks in this series, I've been telling you to ignore pastors and teachers and podcasters who want to use Revelation as like a secret code book to figure out when Jesus is is going to return. But there are, there are others out there who have decided that their interpretation of Revelation, how, the, how they read it, how they apply it, how they understand it, that it's not just the right interpretation, but that it's the only interpretation. And so if you don't agree with how they are interpreting Revelation, you are either ignorant or you are unsaved. Um, let, me give you, let me give you an example. Uh, years ago, there were uh, a, a group of people who had picked up the uh, Tim LaHaye Left Behind series books. Do you, do you remember those? Anybody ever read those? So uh, those, are, those are good good books. Those are fictional books based on some scriptural things, right? So they took some ideas from the Bible, and then they kind of expanded on those and, and, and wrote this whole big series about that. And so I came in contact with a group of people um, who, because Tim LaHaye is a, is a follower of Jesus, and because there was some scriptural things that he used in writing that book, they believed that, that the way that the Left Behind series talks about the end of the world is the way it was going to be. And so they came to me one day, a few of them came to me one day and said, oh my goodness, have you read these books? And do you, what, what do you think about them? And I said, uh, yeah, well, you know, this, it's a fun read, but it's not the Bible. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, I, just, I, I don't happen to believe that the way Tim LaHaye says things are going to happen in the books is the actual way it's, it's going to happen. And you, and you, like, they couldn't believe. They're like, how in the world are you a pastor? And, and like, you could be teaching and talking about these things and not agree with what's going on in the Left Behind uh, series books. So people can get really caught up in their interpretation and their idea of, of revelation. In fact, in, in some denominations that I have come in contact with, it's, it's not enough that you surrender to Jesus you must also surrender to their particular understanding of how Jesus is going to come back. And so there are several options, and I'm going to kind of give you a quick little um, uh, educational trip in, um, into some eschatology. That's the study of, of end times. And so um, you, you can be, in your belief of revelation, your interpretation of revelation, you can be uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, or Post-trib. You, you got anybody ever? Raise your hand if you've heard those before. Okay. 
few of you. Good, good. Okay, so b- before I explain those, let me explain these. Uh, th- there are some words that, that you're going you're gonna to hear if you talk about Revelation. One of them is the rapture. Uh, the, the Bible talks in a, several different places, not just Revelation, but in other places, that when Jesus comes back, that followers of Jesus will be, um, I think the NIV, maybe King James Version, says that we will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. So Jesus is revealed and believers in Jesus are going to be kind of taken up from the world and we're going to meet Jesus uh, there. Um, and so that's the idea of rapture. Uh, the, the word actually means taken away, separated, pulled apart. Um, so when followers of Jesus uh, meet Jesus in the air, that's the rapture. We're taken out of this world. Uh, tribulation is another word that comes up in Revelation and other places, and it just means severe trial or suffering. And so what you should think about is, uh, remember back to earlier in the series when we talked about the seven seals, uh, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, and what was associated with the first four or five of each of those series of sevens um, was plagues of different kinds, bad plagues, uh, locusts, uh, fire, hailstones, all of these things. Um, tribulation just means severe trial or, or suffering. Um, there are people in, in parts of the world, believers in parts of the world today, who are experiencing tribulation right now. Um, they, they are being um, persecuted, kicked out of their homes, hunted, uh, beheaded, killed because of their faith in Jesus. That, that qualifies as uh, severe trial or, or suffering. So if, if you are uh, somebody who studies Revelation, who, who, who like you think you got it figured out, or you've talked to somebody who, who has, these words are going to come up. When is the church going to be raptured? When does the tribulation take place? How do those things interact with, with one another? So if you are pre-trib, you believe that the rapture will take place before the tribulation. Um, now, a lot of people who, who look at Revelation think that, uh, think that, um, that the tribulation is going to be part of, uh, of a thousand-year reign of Jesus physically on, on the earth, and that, there's a, and that when they read Revelation, they read Revelation like, like we would read a book. Um, chapter 2 comes after chapter 1, chapter 20 comes after chapter 1 and, and 2, right? It's a linear kind of thing, and so we we look at Scripture and we can often look at Revelation as though it is, a, it is linear and so this has to happen and finish before this happens and finishes before this happens and finishes. And so when we look at the, let's say the seven, um, the series of sevens, the seven seals have to be finished before the seven trumpets are uh, sounded and then those have to finish before the seven um, bowls are dumped out. And, and, and I've told you that I think the challenge with that is that each of those seems to be tied together. And so I believe that John is simply telling us the same story in little bit different ways. And, and we see that, um, as I said earlier in the series, because each of the series of sevens ends in the exact same way. The seventh seal ushers in the day of the Lord. And there's earthquakes and fire and lightning, and it's kind of this, it's supposed to like be this terrible thing, and it's supposed to freak us out. 
and the seven trumpets, that, that's the same thing happens. And at the end of the seven bowls, when the seventh bowl is dumped out, the same thing happens. And then you look at the sign uh, visions from chapters 12 to 14, and we see the same kind of thing happening. And today, as we read chapter 17 to 20, the same thing is going to be happening. And so if you just read Revelation from beginning to end and you try to put it into like this linear kind of thing, what happens is the day of the Lord happens every few chapters. We're like, like, wait a minute. In fact, as we looked at the seven bowls last week, what did it say? John looked and he was told this is the final, the final uh, day of the Lord. And yet... We, we come to chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, and there's another day of the Lord. And so it just doesn't make sense to me that these would be linear things, but I think they're all kind of mashed together. And, and so um, I, I was actually thinking about it. Maybe this is a really, really terrible example of what I'm trying to say. But if you go to prison, your sentence can be carried out um, like you got to finish uh, two years, and then you got another three years added on, and then you got five years after that, right? So you got to serve a full 10 years to get on. Or your sentences can be served concurrently, so you only serve five years, and in that five years is the two years and the three years and the five years. Like, does that make sense? So John writes Revelation, and kind of all of these things are happening concurrently. And he's just telling the story from a different place. So um, pre-tribbers believe that you're going to be raptured as the church before the tribulation happens, before the final day of the Lord, before the seventh bowl is poured out, before um, Jesus comes and, and the end of the world and heaven and humanity are united. If you're a mid-tribber, you believe that rapture will happen midway through the tribulation. So we as Christians are going to have to suffer some of this uh, severe trial or suffering, but not all of it. Uh, and so the, the hope is that in the middle of that tribulation, we as followers aren't going to fall away, that, that we're not going to, to give up. Uh, and so we got, we got to suffer some, uh, we, gotta, we don't have to suffer all of it. If you're post-trib, this one should be obvious, uh, the rapture is going to happen after the tribulation. So we as Christians are going to have to endure all of the tribulations that are going to happen um, before Jesus uh, comes back if we don't deny Jesus during that tribulation time. Now, this has to do with the thousand-year reign of Jesus uh, on the earth in a, in a physical, but there are people who believe that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reign in Jerusalem, that the temple is going to be rebuilt, uh, the city is going to be rebuilt, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reign on his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Um, a, a few years ago, I don't remember how many years ago, it was before 2020 sometime. Um, for some reason, you, you know that uh, Muslims have occupied um, uh, what they call the Dome of the Rock. It's the mosque, Muslim mosque, that is on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So they uh, conquered uh, Israel. They set up this, uh, this mosque there. And Jews have not been allowed on the Temple Mount proper for uh, many, many, many years. But a number of years ago, um, for whatever reason, they began to allow Jews, they could not go into the mosque, but they could come up on the Temple Mount 
not just at the Western Wall or what's called the Wailing Wall. Those are all the pictures you see online where uh, Jewish people are standing at the wall and they're um, taking little prayers and they're sticking them into between the stones in the wall. Um, That has been, for a very, very long time, the only place a Jew could go to be in contact with the actual temple. And so if you you go there, I've heard stories, uh, hopefully one day I'll get to go see it myself, but um, heard stories of of Jewish people there um, crying at the wall because this is the only place of the original temple that, that they can get close to God, and the temple is the presence of God. So years ago, um, for whatever reason, Jewish people were allowed up onto the Temple Mount and they could come into the area at the top of the temple um, and they could pray there. And it was a huge deal in the Christian world. In fact, many people, lots of people, I'm sure they wrote books and all kinds of things about how Jesus must be coming back because Jews are allowed back up onto the Temple uh, the Temple Mount proper. So there's a lot of things that people are looking at in the world that are going on that they're trying to tie into Revelation and, um, and the return of, of Jesus. Um, so th- there are people who believe that Jesus is going to come back, he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth, uh, and he's going to physically reign for a thousand years before he finally defeats evil and quarantines all of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life outside of his good creation. Today, we're going to do what we've been doing um, all throughout this series. We're going to try and demystify the text of Revelation. We're going to try and look at it as plainly as we can and as close to the interpretation of John's original audience as possible. Um, So again, you've heard me say this before. Think of Revelation like a painting that John is making based on the visions that God is showing him. So God shows him these incredible things and then he's trying to convey what he sees in a a picture, in a portrait of the unity of heaven and and humanity. John is trying to paint in in a way that the Christians will understand. They'll be able to see what he's painted and know exactly what he's talking about. But Rome and certainly any soldiers that might come across this painting that he's making in the book of Revelation, uh, as they read it, they'll think this this is nonsense. Like this doesn't make any sense. I I don't get it. Uh, It's the difference between um, Picasso and and Rembrandt. And so here here are a few just to give you. Um, This is Picasso's uh, uh, weeping woman. And um, I... I don't know, I guess I, I could see that. I, I don't know. I mean, I can't really tell this a woman, but it, it might be a person. Uh, this is Rembrandt's storm on the Sea of Galilee. This is the disciples uh, in the boat. Um, one of those pictures you look at and you go, oh, I know exactly what's going on there. Even if you've never been in a boat on the ocean or, or a lake in a storm, you, you know what's going on in that picture. Uh, in this picture, you, you're, uh, I'm not really sure. And each of us could probably look at this and uh, look at Picasso's painting and, and come away with a different idea of what it is that he's um, talking about. Now, now some Christians will uh, take this abstract Picasso painting and say, if you don't see this the same way I see it, you don't see it at all. 
If your interpretation is not my interpretation, you're wrong. And so I want you to hear me uh, about this. I want to make sure you don't um, miss this. You will not be kept out of heaven based on your interpretation of revelation. Okay? When, when you get to heaven, there will not be a quiz. Okay? Just, just in case you're, you're wondering, because all the jokes start out uh, so, so-and-so uh, gets to the pearly gates and St. Peter says, St. Peter's not going to be there. Peter isn't even a saint. Um, he's a good guy. He's a, an apostle. Um, but Jesus was the only perfect guy. And, and so we, he's not going to be there. There's no pearly gate. There's no St. Peter. There's no questions. There's no quizzes. When you die, you're heaven, you're hell. That's the option. That's it. Uh, there's nothing in between. So when you get to heaven, you're not going to be asked this, like, like, okay, so I know you were a follower of Jesus, you surrendered to him, you gave your life to him when you were young, you did your best to live your life uh, as you could, um, but answer me this question, are you uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Because if you answer wrong, you're not getting in, right? Like, that is not going to, to happen. You have either surrendered to Jesus as your king, or you haven't. That's the test. There is no other test. And so in in Revelation 5 through 16, John unpacks the Lamb's scroll. That happened at the very beginning. Revelation 5, John says God holds a scroll and there's seven seals on it. Nobody was found to open it except the Lamb who was slain. Remember the bloody Lamb uh, representing Jesus was able to come and open the scroll. Um, Jesus could open that, nobody else could. In the last chapters of Revelation, John is going to revisit the three themes that he's been talking about from chapter 5 through chapter 16. And so the, the three themes that, that will be, should be familiar to, to you if you've been here through the series, uh, they come up often, is the fall of Babylon. We see the fall of Babylon in each of the seven uh, series of sevens and in the sign visions in 12 to 14. The final battle, which you're like, wait a minute, didn't we cover the final battle? Like the title of the message last week was the final battle. Now there's another final battle. Again, makes me think all of these are concurrent. Um, And then finally, the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to talk about next week when we look at chapters 21 and and 22. Um, So I, I want you to notice, though, that John does the same thing that he did in the series of sevens. He covers the same story from three different angles. And so we're going to jump into Revelation 17, uh, the first uh, few verses. Then one of the seven angels who have the seven bulls, that's what we talked about uh, last week, came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, which he 
tells us, so that's kind of weird. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly, greatly. And so what John did in the series of sevens, he does here. He goes back and he paints his picture with a little bit of a finer brush, with smaller strokes, but but it's still a Picasso. It's still abstract. It's still hard to understand and to get a hold on. What John sees is a beautiful woman who looks like a queen. Okay, the purple and the gold and the scarlet, all that is queenly attire. But she is not acting like a queen. That's the thing to catch. She looks like a queen. She's not acting like a queen because she's drunk. And and she's kind of acting like a kind of a floozy. Um, But she's not drunk on wine. It's not alcohol that she's had. She's drunk on the blood of the martyrs and the innocents. And so what we get is this idea. This woman who represents Babylon, he tells us it's a mystery, and then he tells us exactly who she is. She represents Babylon. Babylon is, a, is just the code word that John uses for Rome and every nation that, that rejects God's rule and reign. So she's drunk on the killing and the death of innocent people and especially people who have been killed for their faith. And so here's kind of the idea. As she has come to power, she's been able to do more and more of what she wants as a nation. Control more people, objectify more people, oppress more people, uh, uh, work up injustice like crazy and kill innocent people whenever she wants to get what she wants. And that has just made her drunk. It's made her believe that she can do anything. And, and so I, I'm, let me, if I can be uh, really honest with you, I, I have never been drunk in my life. I do not know what it um, feels like. I have had to take some um, prescription medication. Um, I have seen things. Uh, remember the guy in the wheelchair that I thought I saw after back surgery uh, who was not there, um, but I was telling Andrea all about him as we walked down the hall. That was right after she stepped on my catheter. There, there is no amount of pain medication that you can be given that will help you in that situation. But anyway, I, I love you. Um, so I, I do know what that feels like. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what being drunk feels like. But I have heard stories that when you are intoxicated, you feel like you can do things that you cannot do. And, and so you try, right? Um, you, you feel like you're more powerful. So the, the, the killing that she has done, the oppression that she has done, the injustice that she has propagated make her feel like she, is, um, she, she's, she can't be defeated. Like she's all powerful. And so she just continues to do everything she wants to. Now, this, this woman representing the nation of Babylon, she's riding the dragon from the sign visions in chapter 12 to 14. The dragon is Satan. And this makes her feel like she's in control, right? Like she is uh, in control of the dragon and he does her. Because if you sit on a horse, um, we got some horse people here, right? This is Kansas. You sit on a horse, the horse is way bigger than you are way stronger, way bigger, but you put that little bridle in their mouth and you feel like you're in control. I have been on a horse before. You are not in control. If that horse wants to go someplace that you do not want to go, 
you are going. You, you are along for the ride because there's very little you can do to stop the horse if the horse wants to do something. The same is true of this woman. She is on the dragon. She believes that she's in control. She is not in control. The dragon is in control and only wants her to think that she is in control. That's how evil works, right? That's how every addiction works. I can stop anytime I want to and, and we can't. These images, like they seem strange to us, the woman and the dragon and all of these things. But John's readers, as they read this, they would have known immediately what these visions meant. John was personifying the military and economic power of Rome, which he gives the name Babylon. And Babylon is the symbol for any nation power that oppresses and kills for the pleasure and power uh, and, and money that it gets them, okay? So it doesn't matter if it's Assyria, if it's, uh, if it's Greece, if it's Babylon, if it's Medo-Persia, it doesn't matter. If they reject God and oppress people, they are Babylon. Let me take a second to say to you today, um, when I was growing up, Russia was Babylon. Everybody thought that Russia was Babylon when you read Revelation. In the last 10, 15, 20 years, I don't know, um, a lot of people have thought that China was now Babylon uh, from Revelation because China like owns all our money and blah, 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 blah. And so all these things, China's going to show up and, and they're going to take over. Um, and so China has been the, the bad guy. If you want to know who Babylon is today and who Babylon has been for a couple hundred years, uh, I'm, I'm, I may, uh, this may bother you, but it's America it's the U.S. If you are looking for a Babylon to tie into Revelation, it's us. It's us. And there's a lot of reasons um, for that. But one of those reasons is that we say, hey, anybody can come. And if you, every other nation of the world wants to come to America because they think when they get here, they'll be, have freedom and they'll be able to do whatever they want to. What happens when they come here? They're oppressed they're objectified, they're, they're put down, they face all kinds of injustice because we are not one nation under God. Uh, we have not been for a very long time. Um, and, and so if, if you're looking for a boogeyman in Revelation, it's, it's us, people. We're, we're Babylon. Okay. John does something interesting um, in, in this text, though, in chapters uh, 17, 18, and 19. He borrows from the language of the Old Testament where the Old Testament talks about the down, downfall of oppressive nations like Babylon and Tyre and Edom, those nations were prophesied against by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And all of these oppressive nations rejected God and worshiped their own might and power and leaders. So to John, Rome is just the latest um, in a long line of nations that represent humanity's rebellion against God. Anytime a nation rebels against God, and, and I think we fit that, um, whether it's Rome or the US or Babylon, that, that's the beast. That's the nation. That's Babylon in, in the book of Revelation. So the rise and fall of nations has been happening since the beginning, and it will continue into the future because humanity, you and I, we are always in rebellion against God. 
So these kingdoms represented by Babylon and the beast, they will continue to rise and fall until God brings his kingdom and conquers all others. But um, here's the point. No nation that stands opposed to God will survive. No nation who oppresses the weak, who flaunts justice, who kills the innocent, and who gets fat off the labor and the lives of other people will survive. That's what John is trying to, trying to say here. That's why he's trying to point out. That why, that's why he uses Babylon, which goes all the way back to Genesis. Do you remember when the people who were on the earth tried to build a tower so that they could get to God and be in control of their own lives, just like Adam and Eve eat the fruit? These people tried to build a tower. What was the name of that tower? Babel, from which we get Babylon. It's the same. It's connected. John depicts the day of the Lord in the seventh uh, seal and trumpet and bowl as a day of fire and earthquake or harvest of wine. But here John uses the imagery of, uh, of a battle. Now, there are two parts to this final battle that are separated by the vindication of the martyrs. And so John talks about the battle and he talks about how Jesus is going to defeat evil uh, and the dragon and the beast. And then he talks about a thousand year reign of Jesus. And then he goes back to the defeat and, and when Jesus finally defeats uh, everybody. Um, but it's interesting the way this all fits together. John talks about this th thousand years and then he moves his magnifying glass back to the sixth bowl where all the nations of the world have gathered together to wage war against God. And all of a sudden, as all the nations kind of come together, John sees Jesus appear. Now remember the first time John hears uh, uh, about Jesus in, um, in chapter one, verse five. He's told that they see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. But when John turned and looked, what did he see? He saw a slain lamb. It was covered in, in blood. Here, though, John sees Jesus and he looks completely differently. We're going to jump to Revelation 19. Heaven opened, he says, and I behold, I saw a white horse and one sitting on it who's called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, the only one who judges, according to the rest of Scripture, is, is Jesus here. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. Diadems is another word for crowns, so he's king. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in, in blood or covered in blood. And the name of which he is called, this name that nobody knows but himself, uh, the name that he is called is the Word of God. Where else have you heard that? How does John start John? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word of God, we're talking about Jesus. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule with a rod of iron. It just means that his kingdom, that, that wording just means that his kingdom won't ever be taken away. It's strong, it's secure. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Remember, wrath of God means justice, God's justice. 
God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Instead of the slain lamb, John sees a triumphal king preparing for battle. But listen to this. So many people are worried about this um, battle, good versus evil, called Armageddon. If you talk about Revelation with anybody, they're like, oh my goodness, I just, the tribulation, the battle in Armageddon is going to be terrible and I don't know what to do and I hope I miss it. And I, 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 hope, that, I hope that what happens is um, pre-trib. That, that we get taken away before the battle because I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle it. And so people get really um, freaked out uh, about this. And so um, <laughs> uh, we're going to see here. Um, and, and I'm going I'm to go on a limb here. Um, and, and if you haven't gotten upset with me yet, you might, um, you might today. In my opinion, there will be no battle. There's not... There's not going to be a battle. The world's military forces and people may talk big, but compared to God, we are not even ants. There is no comparison to the power of God in Jesus and us as people. There is no point for the nations of the world to battle God. It's not going to happen, in my opinion. So first, notice um, that Jesus' robe is bloody but he hasn't done any, the battle hasn't even started yet, at at least in this section of Revelation, because we've had this battle multiple times. The battle hasn't even started yet, according um, to John, and yet Jesus' clothes are bloody. That's because the blood on his garment is his own. Just like the blood on the sheep, the lamb that was slain was his own. The blood on Jesus' garment is, is his own. I want you to hold on to that. Also notice that the only weapon that Jesus has is his words. Jesus is going out to do battle with all the people of the world who hate him, and he's got nothing to fight with except the words of his mouth. Okay, again, I want to make this really clear to you. Armageddon is a physical place in Israel that many, many battles uh, were, were fought in. It is not a battle. It is a place where battles were lost and won. The people of Jesus' day would have been very familiar with Armageddon as a place where battles are fought. Why? Because back then, if you were going to fight hand-to-hand combat, you needed a wide open, large area on which your uh, men could meet and face off in battle. Armageddon was that place. But when Jesus brings heaven and humanity into unity, there will be no battle. There will be no fighting. There will be no struggle. The same Jesus who died for his enemies when he said, it is finished, when he was on the cross, he wasn't lying. Remember in Revelation um, 1, 5, when John greets us as readers on behalf of God, and John says that Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And then again, 
in Revelation 12 when the dragon is hurled to the earth and John hears a voice that says this, now has come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, of of Jesus. For the accuser, that's Satan, the dragon, he has been hurled down, triumphed over by the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony. It's the final scene. In this final scene, John has chosen to use the imagery of a battle because that's what his readers understood. Because his readers were in a battle right then. The military forces of Rome were hunting and killing Christian people because of their faith. They understood battle language and battle ideas. But what happens in this battle is that Jesus simply holds those who have worshiped evil accountable. They refuse to surrender to Jesus in life, and so he honors their decision, and he allows them to join the beast and the dragon in eternal separation from God's good creation. That's what happens. And so in chapter 20, John switches gears. He sees the martyrs, who have been killed for their faith in Jesus, come back to life and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. Now, some believe that the thousand-year reign of Jesus, sometimes called the white throne judgment, um, is actually where Jesus comes and reigns for a thousand years physically on earth before the final judgment. There are other Christians, smart, intelligent Christians, who believe that the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth is symbolic of the age that we live in right now, where Jesus has already defeated Satan. John just told us that multiple times in Revelation already. And we see that in all of the rest of the New Testament, which isn't couched in symbolic uh, hidden language. Um, And so right now, we live in the Christian age where Jesus is on the throne. He has already won the victory through his death and resurrection. He just hasn't separated sin from his good creation. So let me again tell you, whichever option you think makes the most sense to you has nothing to do with your salvation. It also doesn't have anything to do with how dedicated or wise or good of a follower of Jesus you are. Your interpretation of revelation has nothing to do with your faith in Jesus as it, as it uh, deals with salvation. No one has ever come to Jesus or gotten into heaven by arguing the thousand-year reign of Jesus or fighting about their interpretation about revelation. Arguing about Revelation gets us in the church nowhere. Because the people outside the church walls who are going to hell because they have not surrendered to Jesus and don't understand his love, they care nothing about what's going to happen in the end. Revelation is one of those things that churchy people argue about but have nothing to do with getting people in to heaven. John then goes back. (laughs) 
And it's really weird. So we, we thought in 17 and 18 and 19 that the battle was over because that's what John said. Jesus wins. He cast down the, the beast and the demon and the dragon and Babylon and all that kind of stuff. And then we hear the thousand year reign. And then John goes right back into this battle as though um, all of the nations of the earth have gathered once again. They've been rallied once again to fight against God. Uh, and this imagery where Satan and the beast are, are, are once again, there's a pattern here in Revelation trying to rally people to fight a battle that they've already lost and cannot win. And again, in the end of chapter 20, we see Satan and evil uh, defeated. The devil is thrown into a lake of fire along with the beast, the false prophet, where they are tormented forever. And then John says this, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Keep that in mind. A whole bunch of books were open. Then another book was opened, a separate book was opened. It's just one book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Books, okay, those are connected. According to what they had done. Why are there lots of books? Because all our deeds are written down in the books. It takes a lot of paper to get through all the stupid things that we have done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done, which was written in the books. Then death and Hades finally were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. H however it happened... However it happens, when Jesus returns, it will be as king to deal with evil, to vindicate his followers, and no nation, king, or person will be able to stand against him. You want to know what all the stuff that we've been reading, the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bulls and the sign symbols in 12 to 14 and the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Asia and everything that we just covered in Revelation 17, 18, 19, and, and, and 20, all of that, all of that breaks down to, to this. No one will be able to stand when King Jesus comes back except those who have surrendered to him already. There will be no battle, no rally cry from the enemy. When Jesus comes, there is no second chances. There are no options. You surrender to Jesus while you have got breath in your lungs or you lose. That's what John is, is saying. That's the point that John is desperately trying to make. Because on one hand, he wants to help these people who are being persecuted and killed for their faith in Jesus understand that in the battle, God wins. And so even if you die at the hands of your persecutor, you win because God wins and you're connected to him. But the other thing that John is trying to help us understand is that we've got one chance. Every morning when we get up to take a breath we have an opportunity to choose God or to reject him. That's why it's important that we share our faith when we have opportunity. It's why it's important that we tell people about Jesus because if we don't, they could be lost. You have no idea whether or not you are gonna be a part of somebody's last day on earth. To, to the persecuted readers in the first century, 
John uses this battle language because it's what they understood. But the end is the same. As my friend Brock here likes to say all the time, what is it you say? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That, that's the big part of what Revelation is saying. Jesus wins. And if you've surrendered to him as your king, you win too. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us and thanks for caring for us. And, um, and, and even thank you for giving, giving us this book of Revelation. As, as tricky as it can be for us to understand. And, and, and God, I, I realize, because I grew up in the church, I, I have heard the same stories about Revelation that everybody else has. I've been told the same thing about Revelation, and that's why it took me 25 years to preach a message series on it. And yet I thank you for what you've shared with us. I thank you that John wrote it. I thank you that, that we've had to spend time to actually look and interpret and understand what it is that John was trying to say. Because when we have to work for it, it, it seats into our souls better. And so I thank you for that. I, I thank you that there is no force on earth that can stand up to your son, King Jesus. And I thank you that, that there is no force that can pull us out from his kingdom if we have surrendered to him, we are his. We cannot be taken captive by somebody else. I thank you for that. I thank you, God, that, that there's not going to be a battle. That when Jesus comes back, the skies are going to part, the trumpet is going to sound, the voice of the archangel is going to be heard, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And, and that's it. There is nothing that we have to be scared about uh, in the coming of Jesus uh, unless we haven't surrendered to him. And so I pray today that each of us here have taken that step, that we've surrendered, that we uh, obey, that we have given our lives, that, that we follow, that we repent, that, that we step out in obedience and baptism and we've made that decision and we've made Jesus the king and the ruler of our life because that's the way, that's the way we get to be a part of that glorious day when heaven and humanity are brought into unity and we get to be with you face to face. And so we thank you for that, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that no one can stand against King Jesus and God, we look forward to that day as, as John says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.